Uh, I want to read this first passage to you as we dig on in, and it's uh, from Proverbs chapter uh, 16, verse 18. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, this verse is going to be, uh, it's going to be coming to life as uh, we look at the book of Obadiah today. Uh, I somehow, for whatever reason, uh, I remembered, uh, it must be the Cooper version of pride cometh before a fall. And so uh, I, uh, you know, had myself a little mixed up or incomplete. I kind of mish the two together, but it's really pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, an arrogant, a proud spirit uh, before a fall. And I think you're going to be uh, hearing that throughout our morning uh, today. Uh, I was reminded uh, of a story by an author, Carl Evans, when he did an, uh, a book on Muhammad Ali entitled, I Am the Greatest. And uh, he writes that uh, a time when Muhammad Ali was on an airplane and they were just about getting ready to take off and the flight attendant noticed that uh, Ali didn't have his seatbelt fastened. And so she leaned on over and, and politely asked him, sir, would you mind fastening your seatbelts? To which... Um, Ali, looking at her with kind of that cocky grin, just said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And without missing a beat, the flight attendant said, Superman don't need no plane, so would you please button up and fasten up? <laughs> uh, I'm sure that that was one of the few times in Muhammad Ali's life where he was left speechless. He was not a man who is known to be short on words. Um, uh, of course, Ali was only joking, right? But uh, if a person really believed that he was Superman, he'd be seriously deluded. He would be like uh, the ancient Edomites in today's scripture that we're going to be looking at. They were so self-deceived by their own pride as we just saw on that video. And uh, the truth is, though, we all have that same tendency, don't we? Uh, I know I do. Uh, this morning, we're, we're going to look and see how pride deceives and how it destroys. Uh, so please go ahead and open up your Bibles or open up your phones. Open up wherever you're going to be reading God's Word today and uh, turn to the book of Obadiah. And it's right after the book of Amos where Pastor Stephen preached last week from. And it's right before the book of Jonah uh, where we're going to be uh, digging into next week. So as you're turning there, uh, here's some quick facts. Some quick facts uh, about the book of Obadiah. One, it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. It has 21 verses. And uh, Obadiah, the name, means servant of Yahweh or worshiper of Yahweh. There's 12 recorded men whose name of Obadiah is found throughout Scripture, and scholars believe that none of them were the person who claims to be the writer of this book. And so uh, also, the date, the date about Obadiah. Well, you have your choice. You're really, the two main ones are either the choice between 848 through 841 B.C., or you could look at um, 585 which would have been a year uh, right after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586. Uh, the home, since Obadiah's concern was the Edomites rejoicing over an invasion of Jerusalem, 
it, it, it seems most probable that the, the prophet lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so because of that, um, we, we believe that uh, not only that, but his audience um, was also um, residents of Judah. Now some people will think, well wait a minute, but he's writing and it, it seems as if he's talking right straight to Edom. Well, he, he might be, and that prophecy might be, but this is for the Israelites. Um, although he addresses Edom, he, his message is for his own people, for it's unlikely that the Edomites heard it. And even if they did, uh, even though their language was really close, it still wasn't uh, the same as Hebrew. So this prophecy, therefore, it's, uh, it accomplishes two things according to uh, one scholar, Alan Millard. One, it encourages God's people that their disasters are not final and that restoration will come. That's really key. It, it encourages God's people that their disasters, they're not final. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get into that woe is me kind of mindset, right? It's like, oh, the end of the world. I'm, I'm just acting like Eeyore, right? Nothing is gonna go good, even if it is going good. I'm anticipating already what's going bad. But he says also, and that restoration will come. And, and the second point that he makes is that at the same time, Obadiah cautions them lest they behave. He's talking about he cautions the Israelites, those who live in Judah, to, to be careful lest they behave as the Edomites did and thus risk a similar punishment. Uh, another fact is that there are more references to Edom in the Bible than any other hostile nation except for the superpowers, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylonia, Babylon. And so uh, after those three big guys, Edom is mentioned so often more than any of the other countries. Uh, I, it was kind of surprising to me when I thought about the Canaanites and, and some of the others. I thought, hmm, wow. And then finally, uh, there's not one New Testament writer who... Um, uh, has ever quoted or alluded to anything out of the book of Obadiah. Just little facts. But now we want to dig into the historical background and, and find out why were things so bad between these two nations? Well, it starts in Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 through 28. Jacob uh, and, and Esau, and, and here we go in verse 19. This is the account of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Abraham became the father of Isaac. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless, and the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. But the children struggled inside her, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she asked the Lord, and the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from within you. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And when the time came for Rebekah to give birth, there were twins in her womb. The first came out reddish all over like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. And when the brother came out with his hand clutching Esau's heel, they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. 
And when the boys grew up, Esau became a skilled hunter, a man of the open fields. But Jacob was an even-tempered man living in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for fresh game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, as we look at this, uh, Isaac was 40 when he married Rebekah. We see that in verse 20. And they had been barren for 20 years. We don't know that at the beginning of that passage, but we can see that when at, in verse 26 when it shows us that Isaac was 60 years old when she bore the twins. So for 20 years, they'd been barren. The twins were already fighting in Rebecca's womb. I don't know. Mike, about how you and John, I don't think you guys remember, you know, when you were in your mom's womb, you know, at that time, or any of you others who might be uh, twins, but it just kind of seemed kind of strange to me. And it says, then the Lord explains that the two nations will emerge. I mean, Rebecca's like, what is going on here? So she asks the Lord, and the Lord tells her, and says, hey, there's going to be two nations coming out of this one family, coming out of these brothers, One is going to be stronger than the other. And whoever comes out first is going to be the one who ends up serving the younger one. That went against the cultural norms. We see that Esau was hairy. That's kind of what his name means. Uh, Later on when he's uh, called Edom, that means red. And uh, we saw in this passage red, but also where they lived was this uh, red, the hills. And so that's where they, the Edomites living in the, the red country. And also there's another reference later on that we'll get to about the food that he ate. But uh, Jacob was clutching Esau's heel. That's what his name means. But it also has, has a different meaning, uh, the de- a deceiver. And we will see that as well. Esau was an outdoorsman that we saw there in verse 27. And Jacob was kind of an inside kind of guy, right? Um, Jacob, or dad favored Esau and mom favored Jacob. Can you see the conflict here? I mean, just as we've read just those verses, this is the very beginning And this is what sets the tone for why they were at odds for so many years. Parents started started off struggling to conceive. And and then Rebecca was having a difficult pregnancy. Also, the, the boys were already fighting with each other and they weren't even out of the womb yet. That's something with Miles and Drew, our our sons. We've told them from day one, you're going to be best friends, whether you like it or not, you know. You're going to be best friends. And we're very fortunate that they are. There's no guarantee on that. But it seems like these guys, forget it, they were fighting. They were probably, hey, get over on your side of the womb. You know, you're crowding me. Who knows what was going on there? But they were fighting. And God's plan to have two nations come from this one set of twins, that was God's sovereign plan. And he let Rebecca know about it right up front. Complete different personalities. And then, I'm not, you know, parental favoritism. Wow. That's always real easy in a family, right? Just no problems. 
right, whatsoever. So it was tough, and they were just getting started. If you drop on down in that same chapter and go to verses 29 to 34 in Genesis 25, it says, now Jacob cooked some stew, and when Esau came in from the open fields, he was famished. Yeah, he was starving. So Esau said to Jacob, feed me some of the red stuff. Yes, this red stuff, because I'm starving. It says that is why he's also called Edom. In verse 31, but Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. <laughs> sell me your birthright. And then Esau's like, look, <laughs> I'm about to die. What use is the birthright to me? Uh, I think Esau was a, being a little overdramatic there. I'm about to die. I mean, uh, in the Cooper family, uh, we have situations where every one of us at different points, we get hangry. Any of you get hangry? In the Cooper family, we get hangry. And everybody else can be doing fine, but boy, when one person is hangry, it's not good for the whole family. I mean, it's like, whoa, where did that come from? It's like, I'm just so hungry. Well, I, I just kind of get that picture right here with, with Esau. It says in verse 33, but Jacob said, swear an oath to me now. So it says Esau swore an oath to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate and drank, then got up and went out, so Esau despised his birthright. A birthright was a special honor given to the firstborn son. It included a double portion of the family inheritance, and it also meant that you had the honor of one day becoming the family's leader. Those are two huge things. And Esau sold it to Jacob for a meal, some bread and some red lentil stew. Man. And if that wasn't bad enough, just two chapters later, we read that Jacob even cheats Esau out of his blessing from their father Isaac, who is now uh, almost completely blind by pretending to be Esau. Again, this guy, a deceiver. And he even had help from who? His mom because he was mom's special boy. She loved him. I'm sure she loved Esau, but not as much as she loved Jacob. And so in Genesis 27, verse 31, Esau said to him, my father, get up and eat some of your son's wild game. Then you can bless me. And his father Isaac asked, who are you? I'm your firstborn replied Esau, and Isaac began to shake violently and asked, then who else hunted game and brought it to me? Because right before this verse in verse 31, just a few verses earlier, it played out and talked about how Jacob had deceived and how he put fur on his neck and fur on his hands so that in case Isaac wanted to check him out, which he did, because like you smell like Esau because his mom got Esau's clothes. But you sound like Jacob. So Isaac was like trying to like, okay, ooh, yeah, no, there's a lot of hair on that back of the neck. Uh, oh, oh, 
Well, it feels like Esau. And that's when we pick up this story. And he says, I ate all of it just before you arrived and I blessed him. He will indeed be blessed. Verse 34, when Esau heard his father's words, he wailed loudly and bitterly. And he said to his father, bless me too, my father. But Isaac replied, your brother came in here deceitfully and took away your blessing. And Esau exclaimed, Jacob is the right name for him because he knows it means he deceives. And Esau says, he's tripped me up two times. He took away my birthright and now look, he has taken away my blessing. He's not a happy guy because a few verses later, we see just how angry Esau was in verse 41. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing his father had given to his brother. Esau said privately, the, the time of mourning for my father is near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Folks, this is where all the bad blood started between the Edomites and the Israelites, between their two founders who were brothers, twins even, and it stayed with them for hundreds of years. In the book of Numbers, chapter 20, we read about Moses um, asking the king of Edom if, if they could pass through because they were wandering in the wilderness. And as they asked, they were told, oh, no, you can't. And, and it's like, whoa, it's, they sent again. It's like, brothers, they would use that term because, listen, our families came from two brothers. So brothers, please, if you'll just let us pass through, we will not go off the road. We won't go eating any of the food or taking any of the grapes or, or drinking even any of the water. Just let us pass through and we will do it without harming or touching anything in your land. And they sent the army down. And it was like, oh, no, you aren't. And so Moses had to lead the people to go around Edom. I mean, it's, it was tough. It was really tough. Israel sent a, 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 a brotherly message to Edom requesting passage. But uh, Edom refused. Why? Because they didn't trust Israel's word. And you know what? I can't say that I really blame them. I can't. Uh, later on, we, we won't get to it, but in Genesis 33, um, uh, there was a time after 20 years when Jacob and Esau were going to be reunited. That was going to be the first time after 20 years. And Esau comes riding on up, and Jacob is scared to death. And so he sends animals and he sends flocks and he divides his people so that in case his brother wants to kill, it's like, okay, then some of them will live. And his brother, oh, hey, and he's loving him. He's missing on him. And he's like, whoa. And he says, come on back with me. He says, no, I can't, you know, because I got the kids and the animals. We have to go slow. You've got all your warriors. You guys will be just pushing really hard. No, we'll get there. And basically he lies again because he never shows up. So uh, honestly, I can't really say, say that I, I blame Edom or the people for not trusting Israel. You guys probably know people like that too, unfortunately, in your business, in your family even, where it's like they, they say one thing, but actions do something else. 
I've been guilty of that. I've said something with good intentions, but boy, my actions didn't back it up. Jacob wasn't exactly known as a trustworthy individual, and therefore neither was Israel. Now there's more, but I think, I think we've already hit the highlights. Now let's look at Obadiah and, and see what we can learn from this prophecy. Anyone in here with no pride? I know that's a trick question, right? If you say yes, that you have no pride, then you're actually kind of saying that you can uh, take pride in the fact that you have no pride, right? And if you say no, well, then you're acknowledging that you do have pride, but at least you're honest about it with yourself and with others. Trick question. Obadiah chapter, there's only one chapter, verses one through three. The vision of Obadiah thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? This is true of all proud people. For pride is it's self-deceit, right? I mean, we deceive ourselves. And in considering the case of the Edomites and the pride in their hearts, uh, we need to look and see what we can learn and how we might profit ourselves from their experience. So first of all, they were deceived. They were deceived. The prophet mentions certain matters in which they were deceived by. One, he says, in the estimate of others that uh, the estimate others formed of them. They were deceived and thinking, oh, wow, yeah, everybody else, woo, thinks we're the greatest. They thought themselves to be strong and honored. The Edomites did. But the prophet says in verse two, I will make you small, or in another version, weak among the nations. And he goes on to finish it, you will be utterly despised. You and I, we might not uh, be pleased if uh, we knew how little others thought of us. Another area they were deceived was in their personal security. They felt safe, but were uh, near their doom. Verses three and four, who will bring me down to the ground? I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Because where they were at, th this hill country, I mean, if any of you have ever seen the pictures of Petra, or maybe even some of you have visited there, it, it's like incredibly, like, awesome. And, and we're carved right out of the stone, and, and you see, and you just go, wow, and they were so high, and then the passages were so skinny that they thought, hey, you know, if anybody tries to come and get us, we'll be able to defeat them. That's no problem. We've got a great location. Remember, higher ground, right? Higher ground. Whoever holds higher ground, you're in the uh, best advantageous position. And the Edomites thought for sure where they were at, it's the best. And uh, Mount Seir, it's a range of mountains. It's 15 to 20 miles long. And uh, it epitomized Edom's rugged terrain. That inaccessibility was a source of pride for them. 
The Edomites found security and, and uh, national self-esteem in their rocky fortress of a capital city. They thought that no one could bring them down and God thought differently. The Edomites uh, had put their faith in the wrong object. They were deceived. What about us? Uh, what, what do we find security and self-esteem from or in? Job? Family? Health? Finances? Relationships? It can all go in a flash. And I think every single one of us in here has been touched by that in some way, shape, or form. If you haven't, you are one of the very, 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 very rare instances. We need to examine ourselves to make sure that we're finding our security and self-esteem in Christ alone because he's our cornerstone. First Peter chapter two tells us the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Dwelling in their rock city of Petra was no real security to the Edomites. They were deceived. But they're also deceived in their personal wisdom. They talked of the wise man out of Edom in verse eight. But the Lord said, you have no understanding in verse seven. And will I not destroy the wise men out of Edom? They thought, hey, yeah, we're smart. We can do this. We know what we're doing. Boy, they were badly deceived. They were also deceived in the value of their confidences or alliances. That's what it really means. Edom relied on alliances, but these utterly failed. In verse seven, all your allies or alliances have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Rich relatives, influential friends, uh, tried allies, all will fail those who put their trust only in them. Well, then this led uh, uh, pride, it, it, it led them into evil ways. It led them into evil ways. Uh, one, they were full of defiance. Verse three, who shall bring me down to the ground? We're good. So they were like, no one's going to do that. So we can do whatever we want. This self-asserting spirit provokes hostility and leads to wars and to fighting, and it sure did. And it also brings to vengeance from the Lord. Uh, another way that led them into evil was they were empty of compassion. Verses 11 and 12. On that day that you stood aloof, you just like, ah, whatever. On the day that strangers carried off his wealth, talking about their brothers, the Israelites, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. They were casting lots to take whatever was left after they were captured. Verse 12, but do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast 
in the day of distress, those of kindred race were being slain. And, and honestly, if, if we had time to look in the other passages, we would see where Edom joined in. They were killing their family. And they had no pity. None whatsoever. Well, the pride also led them in evil ways when, when they even shared in, in oppression. And they were sharing oppression. Verses 13 and 14 tell us, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. That's what the Edomites would do. after the Jews were taken, then the Edomites, if they saw any stragglers or someone who somehow escaped or whatever, they would go and capture them and either sell them or they'd just kill them or they'd turn them into slaves. And that's what they were doing. They were heavy oppressors to their relatives. Why would they do it? For sheer profit. And because they were mean and angry and carried a grudge for so many years. And that pride had just built up in them thinking, we can do whatever we want. Who's going to stop us? Well, these evil ways, they secured their, their ruin. Their defiance, their defiance brought enemies upon them. Verse one says, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. (laughs) Because of their defiance, God said, okay, I'm gonna bring your enemies. We'll see how you like that. And then number two, their unkindness that also secured, secured their ruin. Their unkindness was returned to them. Verse 15, which, you know, such a hinge verse as we saw in the video and so key in, in bringing these things together. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. Now get this, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Wow, is that scary. I can't help but think of Matthew and the sheep and the goats. Lord, when did we see you naked? And, and, and when did we see you hungry? He said, and that you didn't do it to the least of these? Hmm. The rest of that verse 15, your deeds shall return on your own head. This is sobering language. I mean, it's, it, it's tough stuff. And they're also, uh, their contempt of God made him say in verse 18, there shall not be any remaining in the house of Esau. Wow. Think God's serious here? We might think he's slow to respond or that he's really slow or, you know, how come he's, you're letting evildoers get away with all these things God takes care of it. He is just. 
It may not be in our timing, but he's just. And it didn't even take place at the time when Obadiah wrote this prophecy. But it took place some years later. Man, how different, if you look at verses 17 through 21, how different was it for Zion? Another name for Israel. It says, let us seek him who in Zion is above all others, the Savior, hating all pride. Let us humbly rest in him. Then we shall not be deceived, for Jesus is the truth. And for all those who say in their heart, there is no God. It's a quote from Psalm 14, verse 1. A day of reckoning, reckoning is going to come. You know that, I know that. Obadiah said, for the day of the Lord is near for all nations. And on that day, people are gonna reap what they've sown. That's why I entitled the message, what goes around, comes around. Just as Edom had sat drinking and carousing among the ruins of Jerusalem, that's what we're told they were doing, so also will the nations be forced to drink the cup of God's wrath on the day of judgment. Paul in Galatians, he wrote, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. Man reaps what he sows, whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Thankfully, the day of judgment is also a day of deliverance. It's a day of deliverance for those who love the Lord. Obadiah, verse 17, tells us that. And you just kind of go, oh man, oh man, thank goodness. But on Mount Zion, we will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. In terms of the judgment on Edom, in a bit of a divine poetic justice, Obadiah uh, said that it would be the Israelites themselves who would execute judgment on Edom. Specifically, that the returnees from exile would occupy the former land of Edom. Look at verses 18 through 20. The house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. Look what it says about the house of Esau. The house of Esau will be stubble and they will set it on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau and the people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephah. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in the Sepharad will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Sion to govern the mountains of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Wow. In the end, Mount Zion would emerge as a, not as a place of defeat and exile and destruction, but a place of victory and deliverance and power as the Lord declares. You know, today we're, we're going to celebrate communion. And as I shared just uh, earlier, you know, there's going to be nations and people who are going to be forced to drink the cup of God's wrath. 
because of his judgment. But you know, we don't drink of that cup. We drink of a different cup. We drink a cup that gives us a new covenant. And when we take communion, we do so to, in remembrance of what Jesus did. We don't have to live under that old covenant because Jesus came and replaced that. He is that king, that messianic king that is, has come but will come again. And so as we get ready to uh, take communion, I just want to challenge you. The cup of communion, the fellowship, Scripture tells us we do this in remembrance of Jesus for who he is and what he's done. So I just want to close our time with prayer and um, the worship team will be coming on up and give you a time to be able to just personally reflect. Thank God that you don't drink the cup of wrath but that you take forgiveness. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we just thank you so much for this time together. And looking at the smallest book in the Old Testament, and yet it packs a wallop. It sure did for the Edomites, and Lord, it's packed a wallop in my own heart. As I've had to struggle and wrestle with the pride in my life in not just one or two but many different areas. So Lord, we thank you that we are not bound by the old covenant but because of the blood that Jesus shed on our behalf and for all who, who willingly receive and accept your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness, God, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.